Hello, this is John Hamel, and this is part two of my conversation with uh, Shelly Wagers. Shelly, welcome back to the podcast. We were talking previously about the criminal justice system response and the overall response to domestic violence. And uh, we talked about the pros and cons of uh, our current policy. So in the second part of our interview, I'd like to ask you some questions about uh, what we know about domestic violence in terms of prevalence rates, uh, dynamics, risk factors, consequences, and implications for the work that battery intervention programs do and other, other providers who work with families and individuals uh, involved in domestic violence relationships. So uh, give, me a, give me an overview of the state of the research in terms of uh, those things that we're talking about. Well, I'll start with kind of prevalence rates because it seems like any good research study, that's where we start, right? Prevalence rates. Right. <laughs> and I think we're getting better at understanding our actual prevalence rates and tracking them. But an important thing to consider when we talk about prevalence rates, especially with types of violence, is across our literature, we have measured it a variety of different ways, which affects our prevalence rates. So one area of my research I do a lot of is what, have, what has our measurement been and is it consistent in how we're defining? But if you look across the broad research, there is pretty much agreement that when we talk about ongoing, patterned, coercive control, what we've come to know as battering, right, that we call domestic violence, that that exists in about 25 to 30% of homes as a type. Other types of violence that we usually think of, Murray Strauss, his group in the uh, family conflict area, there is agreement that that is in about 50% of homes. When we start looking at totality of these violences together and just looking at men and women, there, the CDC's work has consistently shown that women, especially if we start adding in sexual violence, we're, we've been at one in three women, I think, for years of some form of uh, domestic dating or sexual violence they'll experience, and one in six men. However, related to males, I think we're seeing a trend in some of the prevalence getting a little higher. And I think that's because men are reporting a little more than they used to. I, When we look at, if you look at the totality of the lifespan and violence exposure, boys um, at a certain age, if we look at early exposure to violence or even some of the issues with human trafficking, sex trade, young boys we're finding are um, as almost equally uh, violated as in numbers as young women. And so I, I think that's just kind of been a hidden. And I, I raise that because a lot, if you read across literature, there's a lot of literature that connects various types of early exposure to violence, increases likelihood of both victimization and or perpetration of that type of violence or other violence into adulthood. Right. So what you, you made a good point, Shelley. I'm glad you made it about the how we measure prevalence rates really matters. So, for example, uh, uh, if you look at uh, criminal justice system data of just crime and you look at crime surveys uh, just generally where uh, people are also asked about domestic violence within the context of criminal activity, then uh, the rates of violence are much seem to be much higher against women than men. Right. But these conflict surveys that ask about how people resolve conflicts find much more equal rates across gender. The National uh, Intimate uh, Partner in Sexual Violence Survey, also known as NISVIS, finds that if you measure rates of physical abuse, then the rates are equal across gender. If you measure rates of psychological abuse, again, the rates are pretty equal across gender. But of course, if you look at uh, sexual violence and stalking, then the rates are skewed with much much more uh, female victimization. So interestingly, some of the males' rights organizations, you know, had a real problem with the first uh, reports of NISVIS that lumped all these different, uh, what we call broadly domestic violence, finding 
much higher uh, levels of female victimization. They said, well, why don't you report on just the you know psychological and physical abuse where the rates are very much equal across genders. So, you know, different interest group will want to report or fixate on a particular part of these of these uh, surveys, and uh, so it can be very misleading which which ones you're looking at. Because yeah, yes, if you're adding up all the different types of domestic violence, including sexual violence, women are, uh, and in particular the the levels of injuries, that women are much more disproportionately affected. But if you focus on just uh, rates of violence or even psychological abuse, then they're they're very similar. Right. And you brought up injuries because I was going to say there is definitive, there used to be disagreement among symmetry and asymmetry, but on this next point, but there is agreement now across researchers in the literature that in general, women tend to experience higher rates of severe violence and severe injury. And some people would argue, and this isn't a gender debate, that that's because of you know, men are larger, so they're going to be more inclined. Uh, but interesting on measurement as a quick side note, John, because I have some recent studies and I just have, I wasn't able to use the whole scale, but I just pulled data where now I can, where I'm calling into question even the conflict tactic scale when we think about gender and how we measure these acts, because I was looking at the, the individual items and then we use all these small variations. And people, you know, even researchers, we've been remiss when we take what is a statistically empirical valid scale and revise it in our own way and then don't put it through the same paces. It may not be working the same way (laughs) when we delete certain items and things. And interesting, we're assessing on the conflict tactic scale, too, how well it measures, like, is there inherent bias within the items? Because if you think about the era when it, when it was built, because I was thinking, for example, slap. Well, women are more inclined to slap than men, yeah. right? And punch or strangle. So I just started seeing in my own research all these differences when I would just look at frequencies. And so now um, a colleague of mine and I, we're, we have a sample of about a thousand and we're putting it through the paces to go, you know, is there bias in, in these measures, almost an interpretation by men and women, you know? So, and if there is, when you scale it, is that still there, which could be affecting all of these measure outcomes. So having said all that, this is what I do as someone who reads across. I look for kind of the consistency. I never hang my hat on a specific percentage. I look at the consistency across the literature and what's the big picture it's telling me. And over time, this is what I would say. The big picture is In general, I would say women still are probably victimized um, with more severe violence and victims of what Johnson coined intimate terrorism or what we think of as as battering, um, more so than men, but not at the rates we thought originally. It's closer to equal, but women Uh, female offenders, their motives behind the violence are sometimes different from men, and they use different tactics. And so we really don't know the exact prevalence, I don't think, because we may or may not be measuring the tactics to the equal for men and women that are used even for controlling behavior to, to know. But I would say that when we see the one in three or the one in four to the one in six with men, we're getting into what seems to be over time a consistent prevalence rate. Now, are you referring to lifetime? Uh, yeah, 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 lifetime. And when we look at um, the rates over time, like is domestic violence increasing or decreasing, and we've looked at homicide, uh, I, I don't think they've really changed much, in my opinion. When I mean, you. You'll see some years it's up or down or people will say it's on the decline. But if you kind of look at the trajectory over time, the small differences we see can be explained by maybe greater awareness, people reporting uh, our measures. There isn't I don't see any significant change from when we started. Well, if now, anything, it's increased. Uh, yeah. the, the national the National Family Violence Survey is conducted by Strauss and Gellis in the 70s and 80s 
reported that there were approximately 6 million female and 6 million male victims of domestic violence, you know, including lower level violence. Uh, and then NISVIS just, you know, five, six, seven years ago, uh, reported that there's 7 million male and 7 million female victims. So it seems like there's been an increase. Right. Of but we million. have increase in population. So that's when I look at the rate and stuff, we've seen an increase in, uh, we saw a decrease in homicide for a while, if we want to look at the DV homicides, and then they're, they're ticking back up. But if we put it in the context, if we, if we were to take that backdrop and put it with the criminology or violent statistics in general, the DV statistics aren't that different from if we just said violence in general, they kind of trend the same. Does that make sense as far as up and yeah. down? So yeah, and I yeah, and I and I I really agree uh, with your talking about what's what do we know consistently, uh, and not focus uh, specifically on this study or that study. One of the, it's just it's just the fact that people are often are going to want to look for what backs up their preconceived notions right. uh, and they want to they hear what they want to hear you know so for example um, I mentioned you know you, you can cite crime studies finding really high rates of violence against women or you can cite the conflict studies uh, you really have to dig deeper to see what's behind all the differences uh, right. one of the differences is between uh, studies that look at the past year of prevalence rates versus lifetime so if you're looking at lifetime rates uh, the studies that look at lifetime rates consistently find uh, a significant, uh, significantly higher uh, number of female victims compared to male victims. But uh, studies that look at the past year find more equal rates. So who, why, why is that? Is that because men uh, don't remember minor violence that may have occurred, you know, 10, 15 years ago? Or they label it differently because it affected them differently, like you said. But here's my bottom line, John. It's a problem. We have way too much of it. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I'm like, we could get hung up and I look at people and I would say, and you can turn on the news and see more and more homicides, you know, rising. So, but violence in general is a problem, but I'm a firm believer because when we start to think about interventions or prevention, we have more and more information from the trauma world and the trauma research today of how witnessing domestic violence impacts a child. And it has an impact on male and female children differently when they see, based on which parent is the offender. But we also know that these early exposures to violence are connected to later violence. And so when we start thinking of implications, we also know drug and alcohol use lots of times is self-medication to, you know, early exposures to violence or experiencing violence. And so when I start to think about, well, how do we start preventing or treating is we have to start putting domestic violence can't just be domestic violence. It has to be part of the larger holistic picture of individuals' lives and experiences. And I think that within, um, I think we need more trauma treatment and the, the types of trauma approaches in our batter intervention treatment models. Um, and they need many of these people really have ongoing issues that need psycho. They need counseling. They need sometimes more than, and I'm not going to say about your group or others, but because my experience with BIPs is they're very grassroots and depending on the practitioner, they can be very varied based on the practitioner's skill as far as the level of clinical, you know, psychotherapy they can do within these groups versus more just educational is very varied. Absolutely. But, but we know when you start looking at the backgrounds of many of these individuals, when you do assessments, they need more than psychoeducational. They need counseling they they need treatment like how we would think of traditional you know psychological treatment in many cases because we see these connections as the underlying causes um and i think that's an area that we're just by continuing to frame it as just domestic violence as the early uh, battered women's movement framed it where i think we're really inhibiting 
our ability to truly address the underlying issues. So I'm always an advocate of if you want to keep victims safe, we need to stop arguing about who's right. And we need to start acknowledging the research that is consistent and what it can tell us and start treating these individuals like we do others who have true mental health problems because that's the underlying current of their violence. They may still hold those traditional beliefs. We think of the traditional power and control wheel and, you know, that kind of what we call Duluth model. Um, But what's interesting, John, if you go to literature outside of domestic violence and you look in general, males in general who hold those kind of hyper-masculine beliefs about masculinity in general are more inclined to be violent and engage in what they believe are those masculine behaviors. So they carry that into the home as well. But not all men and or women who are engaging in domestic violence have those beliefs per se. Sometimes their violence towards their partners motivated by other things. Well, yeah. uh, And let's make a distinction between men who have uh, misogynistic beliefs in the sense that they don't trust women or they think women are manipulative or, or they just don't like women versus men who have like traditional sort of gender views about about women's roles and men's roles in society because the research shows there's really no there's really little correlation between men and women who have sort of traditional values and domestic violence in other words men who uh, believe that women should uh, stay at home and they should work outside the home and particularly in relationships where both partners agree on that, let's say, you know, fundamental, fundamentalist Christians and other religious people, it, it, those relationships don't necessarily uh, lead to more violence. It's where there's a conflict between the, the woman and man's views on how that relationship should be. And it's and it's violent attitudes. It's like the attitude that it's OK for me to be violent. I can use violence to dominate you. And that really makes a difference in terms of treatment because uh People who have that kind of mentality, who want to dominate their partners, who are willing to engage in power control behaviors, you know, whether it's due to traditional beliefs and gender uh, roles or whether it's just that individual individually just wants to dominate, uh, those individuals need to be educated. They need to learn about egalitarian relationship. It's not just about, you know, treating the trauma or uh, or teaching them conflict resolution skills. Would you agree that, uh, you know, with that kind of with those individuals, it's not just, you know, a lack of listening skills, that they really do need that attitude change, so to speak. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, And that's where I think when we start thinking about where do we go with BIPs or treatment, it's we have to tease and assess all that out. So we have lots of literature from, you know, psychology, social work, and a wide variety of areas now who – Again, they might use different names, but they've begun to kind of classify. Some people don't like typologies, but what I look at with the typology isn't a black or white you fit here or here as much as we're starting to understand the variety and nuances behind what can lead to violence and finding commonalities. And what's interesting is you might have an individual who just has they they have those misogynistic views and they're and they believe in violence so they're going to be violent they might not have any trauma in their background or other things but they'll still be violent then you might have someone who doesn't have those views but has a lot of trauma background um wasn't taught good coping skills you know a variety of things like that right impulsivity control and they might still be violent but would you want to put them in the same kind of treatment program Probably not, because you're dealing with different reasons and motives behind why they're being violent that need to be addressed. Then you have the ones that might have all of that and they drink. Well, if you can't get them sober, you can't even begin to address these other things, right? So, um, and what we've done with BIPs is we've put all those together. We've just like, it's like as if it's all the same thing, because we've grouped them by the outcome, which is I hit my partner, not by the underlying root causes. Um, What's interesting in my field when we 
when you look at restorative justice as an example, restorative justice talks about uh, being responsible, not just punished or accountable, but actually owning what you've done. And people don't understand that that's very different from punishment. And so you have, in my experience, many people who are violent towards their partner, and unless they are leaning towards the sociopathy realm uh, or misogynistic, they generally have guilt afterwards. Well, if they have these underlying issues within their personality about self-esteem and other things that could be driving some of the violence, then they're violent and they're guilty. Now they feel even worse about themselves. You start in like a cyclical ball of how do they get out of that, you know, because that might lead to some of the violence as well. I think in treatment, we have a variety of really good assessment tools and they should be used to determine for each individual what are the underlying causes. Some of those underlying causes are definitely more dangerous than others to make a recommendation of no contact with the victim and you know other things. And some of those underlying causes might pose a temporary danger, but they can be addressed and we can assess again. And if the victim doesn't want to separate, there might be a way to have unification but or counseling. But what happens is this, there's this fear for the minority number of cases, actually, which are your highly lethal cases are probably like a bell curve, right? So you're dealing with your 10%. There's a fear all of them are going to become that or will become that over time from the pattern. And so we intervene in every DV case as if it's going to become this case, as if we don't have the tools to be make better predictions. That, But we have the tools to make better predictions today, even though we didn't 15 years ago. Yeah, and, but even today, uh, Shelley, you hear victims advocates come say you know categorically you don't do uh, you don't do couples counseling with any kind of domestic violence even though even though feminist researchers have for years discussed the advantages of couples counseling when, when couples counseling when it's appropriate uh, feminist researchers have pointed out that when both parties are in uh, treatment they're more likely to learn the same things together and safety is actually increased at that point it's, it's it's just common sense, however, that you don't put two people in treatment if one of them is a very controlling individual who will use uh, what's discussed in treatment as an excuse to batter the, the. Right. Well, I think you have two issues here you, you hit on there, John. One is whether you, you know, consciously or not, when we say the term domestic violence. So I think among victim advocates, from what I've seen, or individuals, language is important. And when we use the term domestic violence, what comes with that automatically from an, in an advocate's world is this idea of that ongoing power and control, coercive, you know, Angela Brown's DV homicide book leads to this because most advocates in a DV center or shelter, that's what they see on a regular basis. So to them, that's not 10% of the cases. That's like 50% of their cases, right? So those are the cases you're saying, common sense, you would never put those together. And you're saying as a BIP provider, I would never do that. But they can't even hear that because they're like, how could you even think about, you know, doing this? We're so I think some of where, you know, we can work on and moving forward is how we describe which types of uh, cases we're, we're talking about and helping each group understand we're not talking about this over here, you know, this extreme case. We're talking about this is appropriate maybe over here. We also need the education on, and we have assessment tools and ways to determine danger before we just do it, and we put these things into practice. On the flip side, because as I mentioned earlier, and I know you agree with this, the grassroots nature of BIPs across states and BIP providers, my caution when I hear people talk about couples counseling is more from the perspective of, 
I've come across so many providers, especially in rural areas and other areas that barely have a high school education. And so my, and I think sometimes that's the advocates worry too. I'm kind of like, I agree with you, John. I think in some cases, you know, couples counseling works, but my fear is how many really of our BIP providers are at the level you're at. I think there's some out there, maybe many that will listen to this podcast, but how many are out there that I I think even you and I would agree it'd be scary if we started telling them it's okay because they're not using these different assessment tools and they could inadvertently do it with inappropriate people. And that's a concern that I think we need to address within the BIP world and how people get certified in some uniformity, right, of skill sets and education. Well, well, yes, but it it goes without saying it. Maybe it does. Maybe I should just say it explicitly, but obviously – if an individual is uh, doing a batter intervention program, they have little college education and they're not a licensed therapist and they, maybe they're a, a, a reformed batter that went through a program and now doing BIPs. No, obviously those individuals right. be do couples counseling. No, obviously not. And I agree that there should be, the standards should be more explicit. Uh, so an individual who's going to do couples counseling should A, be, be a certified batter intervention provider and have special knowledge of battering and B, be a licensed uh, professional at least, right? right? And, right. and have the assessment tools and knowledge to be able to do that. So it's it's not something that anybody can do, uh, but, you know, uh, Sandra Stith and others have found that it can be very effective with, with couples where the violence is a lower level. Well, and that's where I go, John, where I think people have to be careful when they talk about this all or nothing. So if it's, no, you can never do couples. It's like, no, you can under these kind of conditions because that all or nothing is the same. One size fits all we know isn't working, right? It's a very dynamic, nuanced phenomenon, domestic violence. And because it's human beings, right? So we need to be able to have discretion even in our approaches with treatment, not just a, this fits and works for everybody. And I think people have lost sight of, you know, back when BIPs first started and Duluth in the 90s, we had nothing else. We had very limited knowledge. People were dying. We needed to do something. And this is the best we had with the knowledge we had at the time. And I'm not saying it was bad or good. It's just this is this is what we had with the knowledge we had at the time. But we're 20, 25, 30 years later and domestic violence research, intimate partner violence research, it's really exploded. I mean, you can't hardly keep up with how much is out there anymore. So our knowledge has really changed. And I think the more we can land on where we find agreement among that scientific literature and among researchers and start using that to um, influence our policy shifts and changes and our treatment models will be more successful in the long run. What I see with advocates here, for example, because our state is run by the Florida Coalition Against Domestic Violence, every DV center here they have to go through what FCDAV says is their training, and they are on a 20-year-old model. So unless we get to that, you're not going to be able to, But then when I meet the individual advocates, they're all about help me learn more. I want to see more because they know there's holes, right? They're still advocating, but they're hungry for new and different information they're not getting through their training because it's so outdated. Well, Shelly, what would you recommend as far as more promising approaches to batter intervention, we mentioned couples counseling, but that's that's not for everybody, obviously. Uh, in terms of just uh, innovative or promising approaches to batter intervention, based on the research you've done, what, what would you recommend? Well, I think as long as batter intervention is primarily still gonna be used, which I think it is in most areas because of the courts, right? I really think the we need an increase in batter intervention in more uniformity and what we're saying is a minimal and i john i really think you all should be at a highly skilled level and we need to start to understand and value the difficulty it is to run batter intervention programs and treat batters 
and it requires more education and clinical training. And we need to bring those standards up. That's, I did a study in Virginia and that's clearly, that's clearly in the literature too. We need, I mean, at a minimum, you should have a bachelor's degree more preferably a master's where there's been some type of clinical training and background. I also think motivational interviewing, the more providers learn how to do that, take that on is helpful and a more complete packet of intake that can assess the variety of things and then make a plan for the person and show where your BIP fits in a larger plan. In other words, help show them they might need other areas addressed in their life too, not just not just showing up at this BIP program every week if they truly want to see a change. Because I do, you could tell me if I'm crazy, but I think many batters that come into the programs in their heart want to change. Not all, but I think many do. Um, but another thing we haven't talked about that I think is helpful for BIP providers is readiness for change. The research on readiness for change and readiness for change scales to have a better idea of appropriateness. So I know many BIP providers, they'll do the assessment and they'll send back to the court people who are not appropriate for their group out of recognition that certain individuals who aren't appropriate could derail the whole group and affect everybody and have negative outcomes for everybody. So those are individual things. But I think as long as the courts are involved, I think if BIP providers started collaboratively, maybe in different locales that are all providing in a general area together to somehow make that switch happen to where you can do that assessment earlier in that court process so you don't end up with the people who are inappropriate. Does that make sense? So you can tell the courts, these people are not appropriate for us. These people you know, this person would be that or tell the courts, you can order them to us, but they really need to also do this. And this is part of their diversion versus just come to us to have more success. Those are like almost what I think is our immediate tangible. But I would love to see, too, um, like what you're doing with your group, you know, bit providers getting together that are highly skilled and educated to start to create some of what they think should be their own standards and start to get that passed more uniformly within at least state by state and then across states. So we we have, you know, and that being and those being based on what the literature says is important and the structure of BIPs um, meeting more of what's, you know, kind of the literature is showing is more successful, which sometimes will involve you being part of that coordinated response if it's someone who's been arrested. Um, but I know you also get individuals who haven't been arrested that come to you sometimes yeah. that just want help, right? Right. Well, easier said than done. Uh, I know. I've been, I've None of this is for, easy to do, right? <laughs> I've been trying for 27 years to work with the local victims advocates and law enforcement together uh, with mixed success. Uh, Thank you for the kind words regarding uh, the Association of Domestic Violence Intervention Programs. That's, you know, we now have about 220 members throughout the world and we do share uh, resources, information, and it's, it's, we're having our conference in uh, the summer in uh, this, for the first time in San Diego. Let me, let me ask you, Shelley, as a kind of a final question, uh, regarding your own uh, uh, sort of theory about domestic violence intervention, in particular, your views on internal power. How does that fit into our current knowledge of well, domestic violence and uh, and and uh, how could be uh, how interventions could be more effective? Yeah, thank thank you for asking, John. So I started working on my theory, I think, over the last twenty years, from what I've just started witness, you know, saw by being in the field. And then learned and research. And it, it started from this idea of how we have traditionally viewed power. And I looked at, it was the symmetry debate was hot when I was in grad school. And I was trying to reconcile it. And what I found was whether you were t- talking to psychologists, feminists, Murray Strauss's camp, right? The conflict theorists. Yeah. Everybody talked about power being fundamental. So I started researching power. And 
when I started researching power, we typically look at power as something external to ourselves. But what I also started to look at is we have this mantra, it's about power and control. But when I would ask people, what does that mean? No one can really define it, right? And I was really perplexed because you're looking at this power and control wheel, basically that says, here's all the things that give this person power over you that they're using against you, but their motive for using it is power. And that just didn't make sense to me. It was, well, if this person has all this power, how is power their motive? But that's how it sounds. Very good point. And so I started doing more research and found, you know, the battered women's movement as kind of a feminist movement would be grounded out of sociology more than anything else. And in sociology, most of the power literature looks at power as uh, in a dynamic, you know, more than one person having a position over someone, the ability to exert control over someone. But within the domestic violence literature, we never really separate power from control. Well, they're really separate concepts. Um, uh, power is really more of a feeling or an emotion and control or behaviors. And so I started to tease that apart. And then when I read the psych literature from clinicians that work with offenders, they talked about how powerless they felt. <laughs> I'm like, well, this is interesting. So I started developing a construct I call internal power. And it has five key areas that are kind of theoretically aligned to psychological principles that we see play a role, like self-esteem, self-efficacy, those, those types of areas. And I've been working to measure it to infuse it into what we've been doing with the idea being if someone is low in internal power, then they're more likely to put, get their identity and high self-esteem from their partners. So it can be really threatening if their partner leaves, but I'm looking at internal power as being a, either a mediator or a moderator in how they perceive a precipitating event that might lead to violence. So in other words, um, we were talking earlier, if I experience violence in my life, someone might do a subjective behavior that I feel is threatening, but no one else would see as threatening. Right. Mm -hmm. But that's how I'm interpreting it. So, I start looking at internal power being if I'm walking around all the time because I was hum feeling shameful and humiliated and horrible about myself, right, then I'm feeling probably very powerless. So I also attach to that. Do I also hold a belief? My internal power attaches. Do I also hold a belief that I can control what happens to me? So people, People low in internal power would hold the belief that they can't control what happens to them. And that's for that blaming on the other. So it's that idea that I get up, I feel crappy when you talk to another man, let's say, right? So if I'm in a relationship with you and, or I see you talking to another woman and I start to feel jealous and really insecure and those feelings start to overwhelm and I'm fearful I'm going to lose you, right? Because this comes from that idea. They're always, why is there a higher risk when someone's leaving? So I'm fearful I'm going to lose you. I can't lose you because I have a really unhealthy attachment, right? Because I'm driving all my sense of security and esteem and identity from you. That would be someone low in internal power. So I'm going to now maybe engage, I'm going to engage in a behavior that makes that feeling go away or feel better because I don't like that negative affect. And if somewhere along the way I've learned that violence can make that feel better or I engage in coercive or controlling or violent behaviors to help ensure you'll never leave to help that feel better, I'm looking externally instead of internally to feel better. So internal power is how can we measure that feeling? Does that make sense? Absolutely. And if we can measure that feeling, then if they're grounded in other principles of psychology we're already aware with, then individuals like yourself could assess that and then could 
help work at increasing the self-esteem or the this or those beliefs as a way to as another way to approach, not to replace what we have, um, maybe getting some more success in changing the behavior. So that's kind of my theory is maybe these internal power actually plays a larger role than these external power sources we've been looking at as part of the motive in that moment for the behavior that triggers the behavior. So it's looking at what triggers that behavior of violence or the need to control. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, what you're expressing is something that um, I think very uh, competent and experienced and sensitive better intervention providers already kind of know. They may mm -hmm. not use you, you, that, your, that particular term, but um, you know, I, I talk with battery intervention providers on a regular basis, and the ones that I think are doing really good work, they're they're really onto that. So they they have a way of connecting with clients, uh, letting them know that that um, in so many words that you know you, I can see that you're feeling powerless, and if you want to, if you really want to gain internal power, you have to you have to be honest with yourself. Um, and you have to start with the premise that um, you need to build yourself up from within. Um, it's not, it, yeah, you're right. It does come into conflict with the idea of, of these individuals having all this power over their partners. I mean, they do once they exercise, once once they exercise their controlling behaviors, then they gain power. But it's because of a lack of internal power. It's it's a concept that uh, seems contradictory at first, but it makes perfect sense. In fact, isn't that uh, why motivational interviewing is so helpful because it's all yes. designed to help people tap into their own power and uh, take responsibility instead of being outer directed, right? Right. So I look at it as a way, you know, if you try to approach when, like, if you think about implications in batter treatment and when a provider is trying to help someone take that accountability for their behavior, but also understand what's driving it, it can be hard to introduce it in a way that doesn't make them defensive potentially, right? But if they, most people want to understand. So it's like kind of like, do you want to maybe have an understanding of where what's driving that need to do that behavior or why you're feeling that way? Because most are just, I'm so angry. Well, it's like, why is it making you angry, right? So it becomes a tool you can assess and talk about these different elements of it that perhaps if we work on raising this up, if we, my idea is if this is connected to some of the need to, we, to engage, I think of bullying, right? Like to engage in that so we can feel better in the moment. To me, if, if we can increase that internal power, then they don't need as much of the other, just don't hit them in that moment or engage in that, like, do another behavior like go hit a punching bag because you're addressing the underlying issues within them and healing it in a sense to where they'll no longer need to engage in those behavior because it's funny when advocates say to me well they're just all about power and control i'm like really because you know we all are as human beings right we all want power we all want to feel powerful in our world. We all want to feel like we're in control of our life and in our world, right? So it can't be that simple and generic. What's making them different from us? So to me, it just becomes one other tool to maybe help assess the underlying issue for that particular person. Because I think for most people, it's multiple issues, you know, it's a wide variety. And so I'm testing it right now related to ACE scores and prior victimization, because my argument would be individuals who grow up without attachment and high, you know, violent areas and without um, counters to that are going to be more inclined to have probably a lower internal power. And internal power can be consistent over life. It can change over time, but it could also vary based on circumstances. So, you know, maybe if I just went through a really bad breakup, it could be down. I might be feeling bad about myself. I'm vulnerable, right? Until that comes back up. So some of it also came from the research that batters have a, a higher sense of interdependency on their partner than most people for their sense of self and identity. And that's a component of internal power being, I have a sense I have value or a place and I know who I am in this world without others having to tell me all the time, right? Like I have that sense of connection. 
Well, I'm glad you brought up attachment because um, there is a body of research that has found that these batterers uh, are uh, likely to be anxiously attached or preoccupied in their mm -hmm. attachment style. In other words, they're 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 poorly attached or insecurely attached. So my colleague Daniel Sonkin and I recently conducted some research um, on my own case files, and we found a correlation, of, as we predicted, between uh, insecure attachment and specifically for men, it was it was the anxious attachment style, also known as preoccupied attachment, where the individual is clingy and dependent, like what you've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Correlation between that and high scores uh, on my psychological uh, abuse measure, the controlling and abusive tactics questionnaire, specifically the items that have to do with possessiveness and jealousy. And as yeah. we predicted, the, the men and women who were the most possessive and jealous, who's high, who scored the highest on that so on, on that measure were the ones that were uh, anxiously attached to their partners. So it's another, it's a kind of another sort of line of research that supports what you're saying. Yeah, it does very much. And so my construct's trying to pull multiple ideas like that together. And I have found, a, we're working on measure, it's, it exists, it can be measured, but we're refining the measure right now. I've published in a couple of things, um, and I just did a new data poll of a general population sample to refine the measure further and start to test the relationships. Um, and I do think it has other implications too, but I see it as a general tool. Like when we made the self-esteem scale one day, it's just a, you know, it's just another general tool that gives us more insight and understanding. But I do think that I, I'm, I mean, I just believe the more secure we feel in ourself as a person, the less those exterior power things matter. The more secure we feel and have esteem, the better we can feel if our partner is leaving us, right? <clears throat> so when you have insecure attachment, preoccupation, these are individuals who are hypervigilant they're going to engage in these controlling behaviors from my perspective to prevent because they have this outward view. So that's part of the internal power construct is a belief. I control my own world through my thoughts and actions, not by controlling others. That's another key piece to internal power. Yeah. And, and it's that idea. So if I want to make this anxiety go away about my partner leaving me because I'm scared all the time because I feel so vulnerable because I need them so much, learning that I can't make that go away by trying to control them and keep them from leaving. <laughs> yeah. I have to work on myself to make that go away. So that's what internal power is kind of grounded in is let's shift it from getting them to stop these behaviors to help them understand that they're doing those behaviors potentially to control a fear, but they're doing it by trying to externally control their environment, which just creates more anxiety when what they need to do is control their own internal environment. And when you do that, it, you have less anxiety. Yeah. Well, so it doesn't mean that teaching people about power and control behaviors, whether it's the original Duluth wheel, which is a little bit limited since it's focusing on male behaviors, or whether it's a more you know modern version of the wheel. But um, there's some value, of course, in uh, helping clients identify those controlling tactics mm -hmm. yep. uh, and monitoring them. Uh, but of course, the second part is you can't just leave it at that. You, do, you, have, to re you have to replace it with something real that people can fall back on because when people are in a high conflict situation and they're feeling internally threatened, um, if they don't have some kind of go-to skills that they can use to deal with that situation, well, then they'll default to the anger and the control, right? Right. And so my theory on internal power is things like mindfulness, yoga, those, like, I think my internal power in essence is trying to get at and measure that internal notion of us that mindfulness and those things work on that. Like you said, if you teach me how to monitor this behavior, it's like anytime I want to put on a good show, any of us can keep rain behavior in. Right. But eventually the real behavior comes out unless there's a real change within the person. 
that was driving that behavior and I don't need to do that behavior anymore. It's kind of like if you deal with an alcoholic or I know I used to smoke years ago, you know, I could stop briefly, but then I would always start again until I changed something internally in me to no longer want or need the cigarette. You see what I mean? So it's, it's kind of that any behavior we do, we can learn tricks to reduce it. But if we don't work on what's going on internally in us, that's driving our need for that behavior, um, we'll never be able to get rid of it <laughs> completely. And we'll always, like you said, that high conflict happens and then I can't control that behavior in that moment, which is when we really want them to be able to control that behavior. But if we can work on the internal things that are driving the need for the behavior, then at least the frequency at times we need that behavior or the level of the behavior becomes naturally lower. So it becomes easier to control over time or change. Right. right. <clears throat> well, Shelley, uh, we've covered a lot of territory in these yeah. two, these two uh, sessions. Uh, I like what you had to say about uh, public policy. Uh, you know, we can't forget that originally it was all about the victims, right? It's still about the victims. But, you know, you, you're making some good points that if we don't realistically and effectively work with the perpetrators, then what good are we doing to victims? We can't just rely on old slogans that sounded good in the 70s and 80s that may not hold today. So we're on the same page. Yeah. Uh, I look forward to uh, reading more about your uh, measure of internal power when if when it's uh when you've got some published papers on it please let me know would you i do and i have um one that just came out in journal of interpersonal violence it's on i have a, a scholar, google scholar page now and research gate so any any i can't put them out just public right because they're the journals they're in, but okay. I'm allowed so many of my own copies that if people request, you know, I can send them, but the links are there at least for people if they have access to that, um, that journal. So that one just came out and I have another one under review. And then, um, now that we have this data over the course of the next few months, I'll be writing a couple more that I put out too. In the meantime, Shelly, how can, uh, our listeners get a uh, contact you just to if they have some questions about this podcast or any other questions. How, what's the best way for them to reach you? Um, the best way would be through my university email, which is my name s wagers at usf.edu. Or again, they could if they go online to like ResearchGate, I'm there. They can make requests through there, email me through there. But um, Specific questions, the best way is through my university email. I'm in there regularly. Swagers at usf.edu. Yes. Thanks, Shelley. Thank you, John.